Let's take some time to pray to the Lord before we look at his word together. Father, that song reminds us that the truths that we are considering tonight should provoke a response within us, and that response should be to fall on our knees before you in awe of what you've done to provide salvation for us, thankful and overcome with gratitude that you, who are God eternal, would step down out of heaven and take on flesh to become a man so that you could come and die in our place, Lord. Um, These are truths that we cannot overstate the value of. Every word that we try to come up with falls short, Lord. Um, So we are never left wanting any time we come to your word. We can never exhaust your grace. We can never exhaust the depths of the truths that you have recorded for us in your word, Lord. We pray that you would be at work through your word tonight in our hearts, that you would deepen our faith in you and our love for you. Lord, any here who don't know you, may you grant them a new heart so that they can, for the first time, see the truth that your word is proclaiming and believe in it, that they would see the beauty of Christ and the ugliness of their sin such that they would turn from sin to Christ and confess him as Lord and surrender their lives to him. Lord, may your word drive us to our knees tonight, we pray, as we consider this great miracle that you have performed in order to accomplish our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Earlier, we read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and verses 18 down through 23. But tonight we're going to focus our attention on verse 21. And I'll read it again for us. It's the angel speaking to Joseph, telling her about his betrothed, Mary. And he says this, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not in this passage, but the Bible tells us that when Joseph and Mary brought the infant Jesus after he had been born, brought him to the temple to be circumcised, there was a man named Simeon who came up to Mary and he said this to her. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He said, this child will be appointed for the fall and rise of many. There's never been a birth like this birth. And there's never been a child like this child. He is the point of reference around which all of history revolves. He's the reason that a year is marked as either B.C. or A.D., And yet many people live as though his birth has no bearing at all on their lives. But they could not be more wrong about that. In this verse that we're looking at tonight, Matthew 1, 21, 
We see the angel telling Joseph the purpose for which this son will be born. And it's crucial for us to understand the purpose of why he was born. Because if we do not grasp the significance of this verse, we are not going to properly appreciate what Christmas means. Because we will not properly appreciate the Christ whom Christmas is all about. So let's look very closely at this verse. Because this verse is intended to radically alter our lives. Such that, as with all of human history, our whole life will revolve around this person before Christ and then our life after having encountered him. So it begins, she will bear a son. This verse begins with the angel stating that Joseph's betrothed, Mary, is going to bear a son. And now it's interesting that the angel says to Joseph, she is going to bear you a son. I want to contrast that with an earlier visit from an angel when he was speaking to Zacharias and telling him about his wife, Elizabeth, and the son that she was going to bear. In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, this is what the angel tells Zacharias. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son says she will bear you a son. But here, in Matthew 1, the angel says she will bear a son. This reminds us that Joseph was not the biological father of this child. In fact, this child would have no earthly biological father at all. As it says in the preceding verse, verse 20, this child was conceived within Mary by the Spirit of God. As I said before, there's never been a birth like this birth. The angel goes on in this verse to say, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So Joseph is instructed as to the name by which he will call this son. He was to name him Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Jesus or Joshua, means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves, Yahweh being the the name of God revealed in the Old Testament. So in other words, Jesus means God is salvation, or God saves. In the Bible, names are significant, especially if it's God who's doing the naming. It's not as though God is sitting up in heaven in a rocking chair, flipping through a heavenly book of baby names until he stumbles across a name whose sound he likes. No, when he names someone, it's for a purpose. The name he gives signifies what type of person someone is going to be, what kind of deeds he or she will perform, or what kind of destiny he or she will have. And so it's extremely significant that God himself is naming this son. So why does he name him Jesus? Verse 21 again, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save. He will save. So again, we saw the name Jesus means what? God saves. But then the angel, in explaining why he has this name, says that this son himself will do the saving. You'd expect 
him to say, you're going to name him Jesus because God is going to save through him. But it doesn't say that. It says, you shall name him Jesus. You shall name him God saves because he himself will save. What does that imply about this person? That he's God. He's God incarnate. God took upon himself a human nature in addition to his divine nature so that he could come personally to be the Savior. That is why his name is Jesus. God saves. God himself came, put on flesh in order to save. That's who Jesus is. But whom has he came, whom has he come to save? Verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. He will save his people. So he has not come to save everyone, but to save a specific group, that is, his people. So that leads us to the important question, who makes up the people of God? Well, there's many places in Scripture that tell us who the people of God consists of, but I want to point our attention to Isaiah chapter 49, In verses 5 through 6, we get an inside glimpse into a conversation that is going on between the Messiah, Jesus, here called the servant, and God. Now remember, Scripture teaches us that God is one God and yet three persons. And we know that the Father sent the Son. The Son is Jesus. And here we get a glimpse of a conversation happening between the Son and his Father, Jesus and his Father. Verse 5, we see Jesus speaking. Says, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. To do what? To bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. But what does he say about what his father says in verse 6? He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Father is saying to the Messiah, it's not enough for, for you, it's not glorious enough for you to only save Israel. I am sending you to save the nations, so that my salvation reaches the ends of the earth. So in this passage we discover that the people of God includes people from all over the world, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Israelites and Gentiles. And we're going to look a little, more, a little bit more closely at this in a few minutes, but before that, we need to understand from what Jesus' people need to be saved. What do they need to be saved from? Back to Matthew chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. From this, we learn that the plight that Christ's people find themselves in is a plight of their own making. They need to be rescued from their own mess that they themselves made. And that is sin. So now, sin's a word we throw around a lot, and a lot of times people really don't understand what it means. So what is sin? 
And why is it so bad? Why do Christ's people need to be saved from sin? Well, to sin means to miss the mark. It means to fall short of a certain standard. And what is this standard of which Christ's people have fallen short? Well, when you read through the Bible, you find what God's standard for his people is. He says, you are to be holy for I am holy. What does that mean? You are to be morally perfect for I am morally perfect. That is the standard that God calls his people to meet. And to fall short of that standard is not simply an honest mistake. You don't get capital punishment for making an honest mistake. To fall short of that standard is a crime against Almighty God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says this about sin. It says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sins, our sins are crimes against the holy God. And what are the consequences of falling short of God's holiness? Well, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the Apostle Paul tells us, he says, For the wages of sin is death. And that verse Sin is personified like a taskmaster that pays out wages, gives a paycheck to you for doing something. And what is the paycheck that it hands out? Death. If you work for sin, you earn death. And in the Bible, death ultimately is an eternal conscience, conscious torment in the lake of fire forever. That is what death, that is what sin pays. So to fall short of God's standard of moral perfection is to earn eternal death in the fires of hell. So do you see why Christ's people need to be saved from their sins? It's because sin is a taskmaster that leads a person straight to the lake of fire. So let me ask you a question this evening. Do you consider yourself to be a sinner who needs Christ to save you from the penalty and the power of your sin? Romans 3:23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you. All includes you and it includes me. Sin is anything in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts and our attitudes that falls short of God's glory. So let's examine ourselves. Have you ever lied? Have you ever thought a mean thought towards someone? Have you ever desired someone or something that you know the holy God of the Bible does not want you to have? Have you ever stolen something or spoken a harsh word to someone? If so, then you are a sinner. And it's not enough simply to abstain from certain actions, to not do something, to not think something, to not speak something. Because God's glory, his standard, also consists of positive actions, positive words, positive thoughts, positive attitudes. 
so we can continue to examine ourselves. Do you live every part of your life as an act of worship to God? Are you always merciful to others? Are you devoted to prayer? Do you long to be with God's people, to gather with them, to worship alongside of them, and to seek to serve them in tangible ways? Do you bless your enemies instead of seeking to take vengeance? Do you always love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength every single moment of every single day? If not, then you are a sinner who has earned the wrath of God. And if you think you have lived up to God's standard, then you are lying to yourself. If we are honest, we will see that we desperately need Jesus to save us from our sins. But remember, he's only come to save his people, only his people. So that drives us to the obvious question this evening. If you are still dead in your sins and you are headed for hell, the question for you is, how can I become part of the people of God that Christ came to save? How can I receive the salvation that Christ came that first Christmas so long ago to bring? Well, I quoted from Romans 6.23 earlier, but I did not quote the whole verse. The whole verse says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't earn being part of the people of God. There's no good work that you can perform to get into that group of people. It's a free gift that God offers you. You have only to receive it. You don't work for it. You receive it. But here's the thing. This gift is too big. It's too glorious. It's too all-consuming for you to receive that and hang on to sin all at the same time. If you could have your sin and salvation at the same time, then this verse that we've been looking at would make no sense. Consider it one more time. Verse 21. You shall, name, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It does not say save his people in addition to their sins, save his people along with their sins, with their sins, in their sins. No, he will save his people from their sins, meaning there's a separation, a break, a detachment, a, be, a rescue from the penalty and the power of your sin. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus commands us to repent. He tells us here how we can receive this gift. Repent, that is, turn away from your sin. Consider your sin as something filthy to be rejected, to be despised. It's to, to desire no longer to live for yourself, but to live for God. 
When you repent, it means that your heart has done a 180 in its direction. No longer are you seeking to present yourself to sin, to serve sin, but now you're seeking to present yourself to God, to serve God. You want to follow his will. Jesus also commanded us in that verse to believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And what's the good news? It's what we're here tonight celebrating, considering. It's that he's come and he's lived a righteous life in the place of sinners, so that if sinners come to him, the righteousness of Christ will be credited to our account, so that God sees us just like he sees his righteous son. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross, suffering the wrath of God for our sin on his own body on the cross, so that if as sinners we would come to Christ, we would be forgiven because Christ has paid the penalty already. And the good news is that Jesus has risen from the dead so that his people can find eternal life in him. That's the good news. That's the gospel. So please, as some of the songs that we've sung have pled, turn away from your sins and rely on Jesus Christ alone to save you and to rule you. Because if you do that, God will adopt you into his family. He will make you part of his people that Jesus came to save unfailingly. And he will do it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and how clear it is. Thank you for how you reveal our need of you. And you've revealed the antidote for our big problem. Lord, you point us to the only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that tonight, all of us gathered here, I pray that we would realize that what we are singing about, thinking about, praying about, reading about, listening about, this is not a fairy tale. Me up here giving a monologue is not a performance. This is the truth that we need. We need to be saved from our sins. Lord, give us a greater appreciation for that. This is life and death. This is heaven or hell. Lord, those of us who know you, may we rejoice at what you have done in lavishing your grace upon us. Lord, we should always be rejoicing because you have saved us from our sins. We have everything to be thankful for. Even if we have nothing by the world's standards, if we have Christ, we have everything. And Lord, those of us here who don't know you yet, may you open their blind eyes to see the glory of Christ, and may they run to him and hide themselves in him and surrender their lives to him, we pray. He's waiting with open arms. He is gentle and kind and loving, and he has promised to not turn anyone away who comes to him by faith. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.